Hello and welcome to the Level Playing Field podcast. My name is Liam Bird and I am the fan liaison officer here at the charity. And this month's episode, we thought we would move away from football, seeing as it's continuing its holiday away from home. This month, we'll be focusing on cricket, rugby league, as well as motorsport with my first guest. His name is Andy Tucker, and he is a racing driver for the all-disabled racing team that is Team Brit. How are you, my friend? I'm really good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing all right, thank you. Thanks for asking. Some people don't. You've got to be polite, haven't you? You know, there's two people here. I can't just be the, the main focus of it. I mean, that's all we've got left now, let's face it, it's politeness. <laughs> that's, all, that's all we can do. So we're going to talk a little bit about motorsport and, and Team Brit and things like that, but I just kind of want to get your idea of, like, I enjoy motorsport, but I'm obviously not into it as much as you, and I'm a massive football fan, so we had the Euros. But this yep. week, like you've got the British Grand Prix, you've got Goodwood Festival of Speed. You were saying before we started, you've been racing yourself in endurance races. Is this like your Euros? Is this is this like the pinnacle Pretty of British much. sport? I mean, for me, I've always been a petrol head. You know, growing up, my dad was really into his cars, and that then came my way. Um, I started karting when I was about nine years old, and it's it's just something that's been instilled in me from a young age. So yeah, it's. I wouldn't even say it's the Euros. For me, motorsport is the World Cup, essentially, is the best way of putting it. It's just a brilliant sport to be in and around and involved with. So, like I mentioned before, that you you are a member of a racing team called Team Brit. And uh, this is an, a racing organisation that has all disabled racing driving team. Can you just explain a little bit more about the, the organisation Team Brit and how you came part of to be part of that team? Not a problem. So Team Brit was set up by a lovely gentleman named Dave Player. Um, he's a fantastic bloke and he's, he's really driven in making a change in disabled people's lives. Um, he originally set up a charity called Kart Force, which is a, a kart racing team for veterans that had served in Iraq, Afghanistan, and you know had severe physical disabilities, but also mental health issues as well, obviously post-traumatic stress disorder, etc. Um, and he created a set of hand controls for a go-kart. And the guys loved it so much that they said to Dave, well, look, you know, can we, can we progress from go-karts into actual cars? And then that was a whole new challenge for Dave and brought in a race engineer, Al Locke, who together came up with this genius idea of, of making these hand control systems for cars. They're set up so that, so we accelerate with our right hand, we can brake with our left hand, you know, the paddles behind the steering wheel for that. And then we have two little rocker switches on the steering wheel itself. So we've got an upshift button and a downshift button. Um, and it really does completely change the game. You know, it's, it's as your name is, levels the playing field. It really does level the playing field. And we can go out there and race against able-bodied drivers and not just race them, but, you know, be seriously competitive against them. So the team's been functioning now for five years. We also have an academy where disabled people can come along and get a taste of motorsport and, you know, see if they want to progress with it and, and become a racing driver themselves. Um, that's actually how I got my start with the team. I was one of the first people to join the academy and it, it was a fantastic experience, something that I, I had to repeat over and over. So yeah, I stuck that out and I got an email then from Dave saying, look, you know, we, we'd like you to join the team. How would you feel about it? You know, grab the opportunity with both hands and, and it's it's been a fantastic journey. I've loved every second of it. We have an amazing time when we're out on track, regardless of whether it's a track day, test day or race day, you know, we're all seriously driven and and the main aim of the team is to get to the Le Mans 24 hour. You know, it's the biggest endurance race that there is. We're pushing really hard for that at the moment. We've got a three year plan in place and 
I can't see us not getting there. We all work so hard and we work so well together as well. I mean, you kind of touched on it a, a second ago, but motorsport, unlike many other sports, can create that level playing field and participating. It's, it's about just making the accessible adjustments so disabled and non-disabled people can race against each other on a track. Do, do you see it as a, actually society can learn a lot from motorsport regarding just make some adjustments and then everyone can participate together? I think so. You know, it's it's brilliant how we're able to be on the track racing against able-bodied drivers. You know, it's not like a disabled person can go and play rugby or football against, you know, the top professionals out there in the world. Whereas in motorsport, you can. You know, there's, there's proof in the pudding. Alex Anadi, for example, he's disabled himself and, and he's one of the best drivers on record, you know, in, in my opinion, hands down. It's accessible. It's really addictive. And the changes have been made by the MSA, who are the governing body of motorsport in the UK and MSUK. But they've also been implemented by Dave as well. You know, he's, he's pushed and lobbied, make the changes that are needed and are necessary for disabled drivers to compete in motorsport. So the changes are there. It's already been done. Um, and it's, it would be really nice to see it happen with other sports. Um, what they would be, I'm not sure. I mean, we could combine a, a basketball team with a, a wheelchair basketball team, for example, um, and see what would happen there. I think it would be pretty cool to watch, actually. If you don't mind talking about your disability came from a car collision that you had yeah. when you were on a... I think you was just standing still on a motorbike, is that right? And Yeah, so I was I was on a roundabout in Newport called the Calder Roundabout. It's one of the biggest ones that we have in Wales. It's an absolute nightmare. Everyone that comes through Wales has to go either round it or over it. Um, but I was in the middle lane of the mo- uh, of the, the roundabout, stopped the traffic lights, and I just had a car come up from behind, clattered into the right-hand side of the bike and my leg, um, which completely twisted it. You know, my ankle's inverted. I've had muscle removed from the back of my leg. I've had my knee reconstructed. Um, I'm left with deformities to my right hand, my right foot, my shoulder, um, then scoliosis and spondylitis in my spine, trap nerves in my neck. So it was a, a complete head-to-toe ordeal. But I think that's what's brilliant about the world of motorsport is no one really cares about that while I'm next on track. You know, I don't get judged for it. I'm not looked at any differently for my disability. And that is, to me, the brilliant thing about motorsport. How has that changing from being a non-disabled person been? And how has sport assisted you in making that life change? It was tricky. I won't lie. You know, I, I was a, a highly active young lad at the time. You know, I used to go skating every single week. Um, I was in a heavy metal band at the time as well. And, and we had gigs lined up and I was actually on my way to band practice when it happened. The tricky side of it is it, it wasn't actually an accident. This gentleman drove at me purposely. Um, so it left me with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, depression and anxiety, which was very tricky to wrap my head around. I didn't really understand any of that. I didn't believe the diagnosis I'd been given. I thought I was absolutely okay. And reality was my, my mind was in tatters and, and so was my body. Um, I actually spent six years, seven years in and out of hospital, having various different treatments, operations, physio, seeing all sorts of different specialists from the medical side of things, but also from the mental health side of things as well. Um, and it was a very tricky transition. And then finding Team Brit instantly started putting my life back together, so to say, um, just being around so many different people of various backgrounds with varying disabilities and seeing how they were coping with it actually gave me the drive to say, well, do you know what? Okay, I've got these issues myself, but there's, it's not the, the be all and end all of everything. You know, there's, there's clearly a way forward from this. So I wanted, you know, overcome my demons. I wanted to be able to be around cars again. I didn't want to have to look 
six, seven times up and down the road before I crossed the junction, whereas look twice, you know, I'd, I'd be pretty hesitant on the road. Um, and it's, it's been an absolute godsend. It's changed every single aspect of my life. It's made friendships and relationships much stronger than they ever were before. Credit to Team Brit, you know, it's a, an absolute game changer and completely levels the playing field. And were you attending live sport um, before the accident? And and what what? And if you were, have you attended the same live sport since? Have you seen a change regarding just attending a live event? So I I still go to a lot of motorsport events. Um, love rugby. You know, being Welsh, obviously, it's it's the one sport where we can actually beat England. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's not like the football where we get knocked out of every tournament. Um, so yeah, I've, I've always been in and around or involved with sports. Um, I still go watch a bit of skating now and again because there are a couple of big championships, and it's nice how you know people get out of the way when I'm walking through on my crutches. But I'd still rather just have someone you know badge me on the shoulder as they walk past than you know not worry about it because it doesn't bother me. I like to be treated. The same as everyone else out there. You know, I, I don't want special treatment. I don't need a door held open for me. I can open the door myself. It's definitely positive being around these environments because at the end of the day, we've all got to get out and about and enjoy ourselves. And I think the best way for that to happen is for all of these places, such as, you know, football stadiums, even most sport venues, to just make accessibility a little bit easier. Prime example with Silverstone, for example, someone wanted to go and watch MotoGP and they're disabled. The parking is up by the main gate. You've still then got to push yourself in a wheelchair or hobble across on your crutches. They're all distance, whereas everyone else gets to park a hell of a lot closer. In the paddock, for example, I haven't seen a single disabled bay. There's not one. They're aware that there's disabled drivers out there in the world of motorsport, but it would be nice just to see some little changes like that implemented so that it, it becomes more accessible for us. You know, it, it allows anyone to turn up to the venue and know that they can just get in easily. They don't have to try and struggle you know, Silverstone's got two big bridges that you've got to get over. And, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, you, you're going to have to have someone pushing you by the end of the day because it's just such a large venue as well. But they, they do try, you know, they have mobility scooters available for people. But again, we shouldn't really have to use them. You know, we, we should be just provided with a little parking space. It's not hard. You know, we, we only need to paint the little figure on, on a couple of the spaces and some cross hatchings. So to see venues open up a little bit more to disability, to have them embrace it and accept the fact that, okay, we do need to park that little bit closer than others would just be great. And it, it makes it a more enjoyable day out for disabled people then. We're seeing at the moment there is a lot of representation within disability in sport and particularly in motorsport. You've got Billy Munger and Nick Hamilton. Do you think seeing drivers front and centre on Channel 4, on the BBC, on Sky is, is a way that the governing body can have those conversations with people like yourself, people like Billy, and go, how can we bring about more disabled spectators to come to these events so they can, so we can make motorsport more inclusive? Well, that's the thing, you know, to make it more in- inclusive, all they need to do is, is the quick little changes for parking and accessibility. You know, if they had a little lift or a grandstand that was de- designated for disabled people, you know, so they can actually go up in the stands and be with the rest of the fans and watch it from the sidelines properly, that would be fantastic. And obviously having drivers like Robert Kubica Billy Munger, Nick Hamilton, you know, they're, they're absolutely incredible drivers. They're really inspirational. And I think we need them more at the forefront, to be fair. You know, it needs more exposure. Um, motorsport could be the most inclusive sport out there if they just pushed it that little bit further. And personally, that's what I'd love to see. I like changing people's perceptions. That's the one thing I've really enjoyed since joining Team Brit. And 
if we can change people's perceptions towards the word disability and how disabled people uh, are treated and just providing the right equipment at a race weekend, for example, you know, as I say, if we had a lift that would take people up into the grandstand so we weren't having to try and pull their wheelchair up there or they're not having to hobble up huge flights of steps just to get into their seat would be amazing. If anyone's listening to this and they're thinking, okay, I want to kind of get into motorsport, what, what avenues would you say, what, where would you point them to go, these are the things that you need to look at and then go from there? If someone wanted to get into motorsport and they're disabled, you know, this may seem a little bit biased, but there's one place I point them and that is Team Brit. Um, as I say, we've got the academy, we've got the cars, we've got the technology as well. We don't just have the hand control system fitted in the cars. We actually have a full motion simulator where people can drive with the hand controls before they get out in the car. So they have the time to learn and develop the skills before they actually set foot in the car. Um, and that is a complete game changer. You know, it really allows you to get to grips with the technology that we have before jumping in the car. And it makes a hell of a difference as well. It, it gives you that bit of extra confidence that you need. You know, motorsport is, is the kind of sport where you're flat out all the time. You know, there's, there's no let up on it. Um, so you've, you've got to have the reaction times with your hands. Um, some of us, like myself, I'm lucky enough to be able to use my foot um, because of my inverted ankle. It's essentially, um, I've, I've naturally adapted to heel and toe because of the, the angle that my, my foot sat on. Team Brit would be the one place that I would, I would point people. There are plenty of other organisations out there, though. You know, there's um, Disability Motorsport in Scotland, for example. We met up with those guys recently and we're hoping to, to combine forces and do a few things together. Um, but there are many different organizations. I think there's one called Spinal Track. And I know Natalie McGloin, who is the president for the Disabled Commission of the FIA, does quite a lot with those guys. So there's there's many organizations out there that people can check out. And if they're interested in motorsport, they need to do it. I wouldn't hold back on it if I was them. You know, if you're thinking about it, go out and do it because it's it's amazing. It'll change your life. It'll give you so much more to explore and you know open your eyes up to the world so let's leave it at this then uh you just said you're a metal fan what's your go-to track when you're driving i mean what 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 are you what are you what are you pulling on before a race i always like to listen to pantera cowboys from hell purely because it's just you know fast-paced high-pitched guitars and good solos so yeah that's my my number one go-to perfect andy thank you so much for your time and i i wish you all the best and i hope the mon isn't that far away and you guys uh, get to have a crack at it um, I hope so too. You know, that that would be the dream. And as I say, I'm sure we'll get there. But thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to me as well. From an Andy to an Anthony. Anthony Joy has travelled the world watching the gentleman's sport that is cricket. He also happens to travel Europe watching Arsenal, not next season, no. As the former chair of Arsenal DSA, Disabled Supporters Association, there's no one better to discuss the difference and similarities regarding access between cricket and the national game. Anthony, it is 32 degrees weather right now is this perfect cricket weather oh i wouldn't mind a bit of clouds just to make the ball sing swing a bit but yeah it's not bad is it i take it i like to say from the off i know nothing of cricket but i like the idea of going to watch cricket because it does seem fun yeah. i'm i am a baseball fan so i kind of see like the similarities between baseball and cricket as a lover of cricket sell it to me set what why would i go and watch cricket uh, oh wow um it's a quintessentially british thing you know that we could play out for five days shake hands 
and we'll call it a draw and we we have a break for a cup of tea halfway <laughs> through sort of thing. I've watched cricket for mm, the best part of 30 years now. Whilst I've, I've obviously followed Arsenal as well, you, you switch from football in May to, to cricket and back again sort of early autumn sort of thing. It is a great social event. It's one of the crown jewels of our sports in, in here in the UK and elsewhere across the around the globe. A lot of people don't understand it, but they probably do get drawn out of it. So if you look at the anyone who didn't w- watch the Ashes series in 20, 2005, go and find that video and watch it. It's, it's brilliant. In the different formats, we are the reigning world champions in 50-over cricket. Came home. Yes. He came home. Yes, <laughs> it came home. Yeah, the footballers didn't bother, but we did. And it's given me some great friends and has allowed me to travel the entire world to watch cricket in fantastic sites, fantastic weather. And it's just different experiences that football doesn't give me because of the way football is for, is formatted. So let's get your allegiances right then. So fifth game in the Ashes, England-Australia, all to play for. You can either go to that or Arsenal-Spurs FA Cup final. Oh, well, that's ridiculous. It won't ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> On the fifth, did you say fifth day? Yeah, fifth day, final day. It's all to play for. Oh, that's tough. If it's a fifth day and it's tight and and dependent on the kickoff time, I might try and do both. <laughs> I might try and do both. I've done that before. I've done, I've been at Lords and gone to Arsenal by about for, the, for a four o'clock kick off on a Sunday. I've done that. And, and and are you thinking to yourself halfway through that travel on the tube of, what am I doing? Uh, oh, yeah, by the time I've got in front to Arsenal, <laughs> thinking I should have stayed at the cricket. <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. I've done that loads of times. Yeah, no problem at all. So, as you said, you're a man who's travelled the UK and the world watching cricket. Um, just kind of step away from accessibility, where it has been your favourite ground to go and watch cricket and then what ground has been fantastic regarding accessibility? Well, I was very fortunate when I, where I was a, a kid. We lived about a 10-minute walk to Lords. So that wasn't my home ground. That was literally around the corner. So I'm, I'm still very, very lucky there. Having the first cricket tour I did back in 2013 to Australia for the Ashes, MCG in Melbourne with 92,000 on Boxing Day against the Aussies was unbelievable i mean it is i wouldn't say it's a, a, a cricket ground it's a it's a stadium it's massive but the volume of people just simply to watch watch cricket was was excellent in terms of cricket grounds accessibility your second question would probably be also australia but probably be scg in sydney so they what, were probably that that was a better accessible stadium why does that stadium beat maybe let's say uh lords then for instance there's been further development that's you know a simplistic answer to that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, it's been more recently redeveloped compared to where Lords was and and is currently doing. So, Lords opens in the second week of August with the two new um, stands ready to be at the next at the India Test match. So that's increased to I think it's doubled the number of wheelchair user spaces and easy access spaces at Lords compared to what they they originally had. So there's better views choice of locations within those two new stands and and you you know you're in shade and you're also in um in the sun so you've got that choice as yeah. to, to what you want to do it's obviously a lot of people with disabilities don't want to sit in 32 degrees of sun 
for, for six hours. I would love that, quite frankly, but um, others would not. Um, so it's the choice. I think is cricket is is now catering for for those um, those type of spectators or customers as they now call them. And the difference, I think, is is attitude as well. They know it's not perfect, and they're, they're making they're making you know, it's not a, an easy fix. But the attitude at cricket is we want you to enjoy your day. And it's at football, sometimes I feel that's a bit lacking. You know, people's not necessarily there to make your day better. It's just to say, I'm going to make sure you're safe. And that's, there's a difference. So. Um, so the time spent between the two games is, is obviously vast. 90 minutes in football, cricket can go all day. Do you think there is anything that should be priority at a cricket ground to make cricket more accessible for fans to attend and obviously spending that amount of time there? I'm thinking more like uh, changing places. Do you think these should be implemented and, and must be? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they, they, I mean that's 101. Mm. That's, that is an absolute 101 thing. So I, I sit on the Lord's Access Group. So I've sat there probably for about two years, maybe more. And what we did there, we've uh, changing places. We've, we've put in the, um, the Mobilus that arrive in for any test day or, or any ma- major match day. There's two. There's one at either side of the ground. So you, you're not having to seek one out and miss half the game sort of thing. It's, you know, you can get to halfway around the ground t- to reach that. And I know other cricket grounds such as Old Trafford do the same. You probably need some sort of shading or shelter areas that you could come out of the seat and just have a bit of cooling off or take shelter from the rain as you, you know, during a rain break. And, and you know, the concessions, you know, the, to the food, drink, shops, that kind of thing, you know, that needs accessible. But one of the things I've always found that is, is, is quite a social event, cricket, and the, the flow of, of traffic people around the cricket ground can be a bit choked, you know, in terms of the crowd that you have, and it can be a bit narrow and getting a, you know, someone who, uh, it, you know, has an ambulant disability or a wheelchair user or, or you know, blind or partially sighted can be a challenge, you know, and that's some, keeping that flow around the ground is moving is, is, is difficult. And that's, that's, you know, something we've raised to the ground management at, at Lords particularly, but I think there are similar issues um, elsewhere. It's a symptom, not a cause of cricket you know people want to come back chat have a drink and particularly if you're in the hospitality areas and 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 are not so minded to watch every ball of the cricket it's 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 a nice way to spend a day at level playing field on the, on our website you can pretty much find any uh accessible information from national league to the premier league in football in cricket that's not the case it is something that we're working towards but it's not the case do you yeah. think there's not enough signage in cricket to, to for, for disabled people to actually find all the information that they need to go and watch a game of cricket if that's something no. that they feel like they want to go and do no if you if you if you were brand new and you just wanted to take over your own volution just to go and get a ticket if you could get a ticket i think there's still a lot of room for improvement there i mean i've been going for so many years that you kind of know how and also when to book your tickets so the tickets that i'll be going to Trent Bridge and, and Lords and the Oval and everywhere else. I've had them booked since the autumn because that's where you need to get the days you want. You can't just be phoning up. And if you do, you're going to get an, an odd day. You can't have your top choice where you want to go because that's the supply and demand. But the availability, the knowledge, the information on from certain grounds could imp- be improved. So in all your travels all over the world, what, what one thing would you take from Stadia that you've seen that you would like to see implemented 
in English uh, ground. Not retrofit old pavilions to put viewing areas. Now, whether that's at the front, and a lot of them put at ground level, which is fine. You've got a good view and no one obstructs it. But the ball's only about that big. And, you know, from the other side of the pitch, some, you know, uh, you know near enough about a kilometre later, it's quite hard to see sometimes. So a, a viewing choice, uh, an elevated one, the romance part of, of and the you know, the stereotypical image of a, of a, of a cricket field, pitch and, and field is a grass bank. If you've got an easy access or a, a, a place where, you know, a wheelchair user could get to view from that glass, grass bank for a part of the day is fine. You know, it's a bit difficult to say that's your seat. You know, that's where you'll stay for the next six hours. There is something that I'll, I'll quite go, I'm going to go for a wander. So I, about two years ago, I went through in Barbados. Cat was in a hospitality box, but I watched half the game come down outside a, like a pop-up pool, you know, because it was just nice. It was it was different, different aspect of an introduction. And it gives you a different feel to the cricket that way. It's much more informal and it isn't someone who's going to be going, here, mate, where's your ticket on that stand? You know, it's a bit more relaxed. You're treated like a grown-up. You can have a beer, you can have a glass of wine in that confines, and you're trusted to do so. That's the difference with football. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been grand. Um, I probably still won't go and watch cricket, but if I ever do, I will uh, give you a call for advice on where best to sit and uh, where to go and watch it. Well, d- definitely don't go at Surrey. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know if that's a rivalry. No, it's a dig. It's definitely a dig. Okay. It's definitely a dig. I I, I don't do South of the River, so don't do it. Sorry. Fair enough, fair enough. Once again, thank you so much, mate. Thanks a lot. Community Integrated Care is one of the UK's largest health and social care charities. John Hughes is the Director of Partnerships and Communications at the charity. He also happens to be my guest, and we talk about the partnership between the charity and rugby league and getting more disabled people to participate in rugby as well as go watch it. So this is a sports podcast. So let's talk a little bit sport first. It's been it, it seems to be that 2021 has kind of backlogged with sporting major events coming up. We've had Euros and Wimbledon done. We've got the Grand Prix coming up and then obviously the Rugby League World Cup. I, I mean are you in the camp of too much sport? Are you, or as in not enough? I mean, where where are you sitting? I have really missed sports and crowds. Like genuinely, like you know, watching football, it's entirely different. The, the atmosphere of a canned noise of an empty stadium versus you know when you watch the Euros with a with a full crowd. So for me, soaking it up, having having been deprived of it for a while, I, th- I think it's sort of great to see so much going on at the moment. So let, let's talk about the work that you do at Community Integrated Care. It's one of the U- UK's largest health health and social care charities. Can you briefly explain to the listeners what your role at the charity entails? Yeah, so Community Integrated Care is a, a charity that was founded about 33 years ago. And as you say, one of the biggest care providers in the UK. So we support about 4,000 people, support people who have learning disabilities, autism, mental health concerns, dementia, people who might have acquired brain injuries and other complex support needs. And I guess the core purpose of our charity is to support people to live with independence, to lead the best life possible and fulfill their, their dreams, their goals, their aspirations in life. And I'm really lucky to have like a privileged job, which is around 
working with communities, working with the people we support to create things that enable people to lead the lives they want to lead. So obviously we all know that sadly in areas of society there's, there's things that are lacking, a lack of accessible sport options, a lack of opportunities for people to work, a lack of opportunities for people to discover their full potential. And what my job is about working with individuals, working with communities, working with the people we support, to try and look at those unmet needs and, and try and find different ways to achieve them. How did the partnership between Community Integrated Care and Rugby Super League come about then? Because I, I think a lot of industries, charities will look and go, if you're going to get into sport, they'll go football. Why, yeah. why was it that you went for Rugby League? We've worked with like sports organisations for 12, 13, 14 years. The range of programmes that we've created is like incredible. So sports clubs, social clubs, accessible sports opportunities, campaigns around inclusion, elements of match day assessments, dementia cafes, a whole mix of opportunities. In most communities, the sports organisation is the focal point of those communities. And then if you think about the things those organisations have got at their fingertips, they've got a fan base, they've got space, they've got people who understand health, well-being. They've got like a part of the cultural fabric of those towns. In lots of the communities we work in, there's a real lack of like accessible sports facilities where people can watch a game, play a sport, be part of a team environment. One of the things I like is a genuine sadness for me is like a lot of people access social care. The people in their lives are people who are paid to be with them. Everyone should have the opportunity to have friends, to lead a life with purpose. And you look at what a sporting organisation can do with all those things that I outlined. It's massive. So we'd worked for, for a number of years with individual rugby league clubs we end up getting to this place where in some of those communities the mix of programs and what they were doing for those individuals and what doing for those communities was massive you know sports provision for people who'd never have the chance to access sport hundreds of people going to watch games massive amount of work to change the attitudes of people in those towns so that relationship had been really strong and we'd seen that some clubs had created learning disability rugby league teams and we'd done elements of that like we'd had people with, who have learning disabilities playing rugby league, what they'd done is they'd put it against the club badge, and that was amazing. I got just to watch one of the first games to look at how good that opportunity is. Like people playing for the club they love. Then also as an observer, someone who'd worked in social care, I could also see the things that had gone wrong. I'd see coaches at the beginning of it, right, everyone, let's touch your toes. And you could see half the group could touch the toes and half the group couldn't. I could see that they were playing to win. It was a competitive game. So if you think about the individuals who participating in the sport, four points for a try, two points for a kick. So I watched like a group of people coming off a field, half of whom were absolutely delighted, and the other half had left the field with the body language of people who felt like they'd lost. And if you think about those individuals and all the barriers they've faced in life, all the challenges they've faced, how amazing it is to play for their hometown team under that badge, no one should be leaving that field feeling like they'd lost. So Super League brought in a, a chief exec called Robert Elston. I just asked, like, basically badgered him, can I meet you and talk to you about an opportunity? And the opportunity he wants to do is to create Learning Disability Super League. So, to, to, so we outlined this vision for him, which is try and get all the major clubs doing this programme. Those clubs will be trained to do the programme. They'll understand the purpose of the project. So the purpose isn't about winning. It's not about losing. It's about access to opportunity. It's about access to experience. It's about people feeling proud. 
we want the individuals not to be playing on school fields, but to be playing at Super League games as Super League players. You know, we want them to be part of Magic Weekend, which is the big hallmark fixture. And we will sort of train these clubs so that they can become like anchor institutions in the community. And fair play to Robert, like he absolutely saw the appeal in it straight away. He he really bought into it. We had conversations with the Rugby Football League, who's the governing body, and you know, they were absolutely behind it. And then we had conversations with clubs and 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 that went well. And it was literally in November 2018 we pitched the idea. And the project was live in February 2019. We didn't want people to miss that Super League season. It's amazing. Like you, you sort of come up with these ideas and think, we don't quite know how we're going to get on. But it literally like, had the first season, about 160 to 200 people playing. And they played Anfield in front of massive crowds and played all the big Super League events. They finished the year walking out in front of 90,000 people or 80,000 people at Old Trafford. And that whole experience was amazing. But for me, it's like it's what it does for people off the field rather than just on the field. That that sort of matters to me as, as much as anything else. Have you seen that step of participating in sport to then going and watching live sport? Yeah, absolutely. Like that's one of the um, that was one of the fundamentals at the beginning. We have had games where prior to the Learn the Super League, we'd take hundreds of people to watch their match day events. Those experiences were genuinely magical. Like. To just take individuals who might never have had any association with sports to have the chance to go to a live event with their friends, with the families, is unbelievable. Like, and if you think about social care work, unfortunately for our workforce, it's a low-paying sector, and that's nothing that I can change or anyone else can change. It's, it's about the, the money that the care sector receives. For them as individuals, it's hard to go to a match day. Tickets are expensive. But if you've got a person we support who loves a sport and a support worker who shares that common interest, that's where the magic happens. You know what I mean? That's where people love the job. Two people support, like a person receives support and the person supporting them, shared interests, shared passions. That's like a mutually fulfilling day. Two people doing the thing they love together. For me, I always knew that like what the Learn Disability Super could do at, at scale could be to introduce new people to the sport who've never had the chance to do that. And I think Magic Weekend, I think in total we took about a 1,000 people. But that sense of a group of friends coming together to watch a sport together, enjoying that full match day experience, it was such a buzz because you, you forget how exciting that is. You forget how exciting it is to go to your first match day or to have that routine. And we've got people now who've got season tickets to go into games like I see people who are now wearing the, the kits of clubs they had no association with what that does for those crowds as well because the Learn This World Super League is such a visible project genuinely I think like it's gone some way to educating the public around like people's potential and things people can achieve and, and that that sense of how a club can be like an inclusive environment so yeah it has been amazing to see how many people have started to not only play the sport but watch the sport you're you're bringing in as an organisation. You're bringing in supporters to come and watch games. What can the Super League do to increase that number? We're currently we'll talk about this in a bit, I'm sure, Liam, But we're doing a lot of work with the Rugby League World Cup at the moment, and we've got a group of individuals who we support. People who have signed up as volunteers at the World Cup who are helping advise the World Cup on match day accessibility and inclusion. And I suppose that like anything, there's it's a mix of environment and practical factors. What you find is even without spending any cost, there are simple practical things that you can do to make 
a more inclusive environment. So we're doing things with the World Cup, like designing social stories so that people who might need to visualise an experience before they receive it can see on a piece of paper, going to St. James's Park, this will be where I, I sit. This is the experience I will have. There might be crowds, there might be noise, that sort of work doesn't really cost much. It takes a little bit of effort, but actually that experience is really important. Some of it's a provision of information, like um, advising people, arrive at a certain time if you want to avoid the queues. So there's, you know, there's, there's real simple things you can do. If take these items, if you wish, and, you know, air defenders, um, weighted blankets, all sorts of simple things that for us, it's just educating our colleagues and, and families to let them know these things are an option. I think the thing that sits above that for me is for so many people we support and people like them, sport can be absent in their lives. And it's not that they don't like it. It's that it's never been brought into their life. A lot of it comes down to like customer service, culture, information. So, you know, I've seen not necessarily in rugby league, but across different sporting environments, colleagues trying to buy tickets for people supported and that experience of trying to get the, the curvish ticket being a fairly arduous one. People feeling grilled about having to, to prove the things. So, and I, I've been on the other side, I've worked in sporting environments, and I think sometimes people in ticket offices, they don't know the things that they're asking for. You know, like They don't know the barriers they're putting up for, for, for individuals. Um, and things like being able to clearly articulate to people, there are wheelchair accessible spaces in the stadium really simple things provision of information on your website and and basics like parking do you know what I mean so but, but so much of it comes back to me to this fundamental of like those organisations realising that people who have disabilities are a core customer and actually we should proactively find ways to give equal access do you know what I mean part of it is it's got to be mindset and culture hasn't it people realising the whole span of a fan base genuinely like a lot of the things you can do to improve access and opportunity don't massively require a lot of cost i think a lot of it is like one-time solutions a great policy a great set of information on your website some fairly well-trained staff and appreciation that as a club we need to reach out to all sectors of our fan base or recognize that there might be other groups that in our communities that we're not reaching john thank you so much for your time and um i hope the rugby world cup is is as joyful and and as fun for people who enjoy rugby. I, I'm not that I'm not that guy, but uh, <laughs> I I've got a Lebanese girlfriend, and I've just discovered that Lebanon are in the World Cup, so we might try and uh, keep an eye out for that. We're having some fun at the moment doing some Lebanese cooking, so uh, oh mate, we'll, we'll get some tips afterwards. Definitely, definitely. Thank you very much. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank you to all my guests on today's podcast. There are links to Team Brit and the work that Community Integrated Care are doing in the episode description of this podcast. So go check that out. We'll be back in a month's time. In the meanwhile, please do keep an eye on the Level Playing Field website to see what the organization has been up to. You can contact Level Playing Field via email info at levelplayingfield.org.uk or you can reach out to us via social media on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If you enjoy the podcast, please go rate and review on Apple Podcasts and please continue to recommend this podcast to anyone you think who might find it of interest. Until next time, be well. Be well.